Well, in tonight's teaching, Jesus deals with the weak and he deals with his doctrine. Chapter 7 closed, and wasn't that awesome, having Pastor Xavier teach last week? <laughs> I loved it. But chapter 7 closed with the men doing, uh, going to their homes after much discussion, much more dialogue um, over who Jesus is and the authority that he possesses. All the while, the religious leaders are seeking to discredit him. Now, in chapter 8, it opens with Jesus going to the Mount of Olives. Uh, It states in verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And as I looked at that verse, I thought about that, and I thought, where is he going? Mount of Olives. What's he going to go do? And knowing his character and knowing who he is and knowing what we've learned about him, where did he go? I think he went to go pray. How many times do we hear that he went to the mountain and prayed? We read in the other Gospels of his persistence in prayer. In Matthew 14, verse 23, it says he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And in Mark 1, verse 35, now in the morning, having risen a long while before uh, daylight, he went out and he departed to a solitary place where he prayed. And in Luke 6, verse 12, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. He is such an awesome example of how important it is to pray. If Jesus needed to pray, if Jesus needed to be alone with the Father, how much more you and I. It was his practice to go to the mountain and pray. And whatever the case, we don't know what, why he went to the Mount of Olives, but whatever the case, The crowds went to their homes after that conversation in chapter 7. They went and had dinner. They probably had a nice time with their children. And then they snuggled and went to bed. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said in Luke 9, verse 58, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Look at verse 2. Now early in the morning... Went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down, and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. The day begins early with Jesus teaching the people. Jesus is always ministering to the people. This is why he came. You'll remember that Jesus had said, as he looked at at Israel, they are sheep without a shepherd. Jesus came to minister to the people. And we read that the religious leaders try to disrupt and entrap Jesus, which is one of many times that they try to entrap him. You'll remember in Mark 12 when the Pharisees foolishly uh, try to question Jesus about, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And what did Jesus say? Whose image is on the coin? Jesus said, "Render render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God." And then there was also in Matthew um, 22, uh, verses 23 through 33, when the Sadducees questioned him about the resurrection. And they give the example of the woman who had been married to seven different brothers. And they asked him, whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, there's not going to be given in marriage. Don't worry about that. And then there was also in Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40, when the scribes heard Jesus silence the Sadducees by his wisdom. 
And they thought they sought to question Jesus by asking, which is the first commandment of all? Again, testing him. And Jesus says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. And the second is likened unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Every time they sought to entrap him, his wisdom just came forth. It was just amazing. In the Gospels, the scribes are seen as dedicated enemies of Christ. Karen shared back in chapter 5 that when Jesus had healed the man in Bethsaida, that they hated him and that that would intensify. Why did they hate him? Because he healed on the Sabbath. Wow, what a crime, huh? But it, you see that as we continue through John. It just continues to intensify. And I think that's why I was blown away as I studied these, this chapter that his concern was to minister to them. They might have wanted to throw stones at him, but he didn't want to throw stones at them. He continued to minister to them. Look at verses uh, 4 through 6, and it says, And when they sat her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commands us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something to which to accuse him. Always to accuse him. This charge was already prejudicial and grossly unfair, since it takes two to commit adultery. To be caught in the very act, where was the man? They only brought the woman. Where was the man? Um, These men were not interested in justice. They were only interested in entrapping Jesus at the expense of this woman's shame. Yes, adultery was punishable by death, according to Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus chapter 20. But both the man and the woman were to be stoned. The law was designed to safeguard the sanctity of sex, the holiness of marriage, and the moral purity of a nation. And you'll notice the sanctity of sex and the holiness of marriage and the moral purity of the nation, which we have not done today. And look at our nation. Look at this free love has done to our country, to our children. Uh, The cruelty and mistreatment uh, to this woman as they brought her before Jesus and the crowd. The whole scene came about because they wanted to trap Jesus. They didn't care about this woman. All they cared about was entrapping Jesus. Um, How would you like to have to come to these guys if you had a problem? How would you like to come to these Pharisees? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Of course, Jesus was a godly man, and they didn't mind coming to him. The sinners didn't mind coming to him. But because of the self-righteousness of these Pharisees, what did they have? What did they have? They had no one. The law says to Stoner, what do you say? These religious leaders thought that they could find fault in Jesus through these circumstances. If he ordered them to free her, he would lose the support of the people. If he ordered to execute, he would be assuming authority that only belonged to Rome, and he would be reported to Pilate. But with every question intended to entrap him, it only reinforced Jesus' credibility, contrary to what they sought to accomplish. What they didn't realize was that a greater than Solomon was there, 
as stated in Luke 11:13, speaking of Jesus. And we all know this. The Bible says that Solomon was the wisest man. But the scripture says, a wiser than Solomon. So as they tried to entrap Jesus every time, a wiser than Solomon was there. Look at verse, uh, the latter part of verse 6 and 7. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as uh, though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her. Throw a stone, referring to the heavy stone used for execution. Under the law, this stone had to be cast by the witnesses. Jesus upheld the law in such a way that he put the responsibility back on them. He knew what was in man. Yes, a wiser than Solomon was there. In John 2, verse 25, it says that Jesus knew what was in men. In Hebrews 4, verse 13, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him um, whom we have to do with. Ladies, be careful even how you think. Jesus knows what you're thinking. It's not only what comes out. You know, sometimes we're talking in a conversation and we can't believe somebody said it. And somebody says, it's bad enough they thought it. But to actually say it, ooh, it's bad enough to think it. Because Jesus knows what you're thinking. We need to be careful. Uh, he knew no one could dare claim, throw that stone, because every one of us have sin. Look at verses 8 and 9. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Then those that heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went one by one, beginning with the old, oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. The Lord opened up the conscience, their conscience while giving a glimmer of hope to this woman. He then bent down again and resumed writing in the dust. Then, one by one, they became convicted by their own conscience, from the oldest to the last. Now there was left only Jesus and the woman. And nobody knows what Jesus wrote. People have written different things, but nobody really knows. But I, I love what Pastor Chuck's shared and he has shared that possibly he's writing on the sand the sins of those that are ready to stoner you know sin looks really bad on somebody else but not on you but when it's full in your face it's bad when god reveals sin like someone can tell me something about myself and i can kind of fluff it off but when god reveals it to me you know you know and i can just see one by one them throwing down their stones and walking away because they know their sinful lives as well. Look at verses 10 and 11. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw none but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus, who was the only one who could throw the stones, told her, go and sin no more. He said, neither do I accuse you. Love it. And that's what he does to every one of us, doesn't he? He doesn't accuse us. Satan may condemn us and accuse us. Matter of fact, isn't he called the accuser of the brethren? But God doesn't accuse us. Jesus doesn't accuse us. Jesus said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And in that simple statement she made, she made Jesus Savior and Savior of her life. She called him Lord. She put him 
on the throne of her heart. She put herself under his authority. The law could only condemn her to death. Jesus offered her hope when there was no hope. And isn't that what he does for every one of us? Where there's no hope, Jesus gives us hope. We're told in John 12, verse 47, he had not come into the world to judge the world, but the world uh, through him might be saved. You see, Jesus is there, and he's walking among them, but he's not there to judge them. He's there to minister to them. He's come that he might give them life and life eternal. This is his whole calling. Jesus did not condemn sin. He conquered it. Jesus tells her, go and sin no more. With a new Lord and a new life, she went on her way. And in this setting, we find recognition, we find repentance, we find regeneration, we find restitution, and we find reconciliation. Reconciliation, I'm sorry. And I thought about the, the, the prodigal son, and he went through the same thing. As he was in that pig pen, uh, he found recognition, repentance, and regeneration. And when he went back to his father's house, How did the father receive him? With such incredible joy, with such incredible love. Salvation does not come from suffering. It comes from grace. It comes from the suffering and death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. That's what God has done for every one of us. We see that the outcome rests upon the Lord's forgiveness. Forgiveness demands a clean break from sin. Jesus told her, go and sin no more. Look at verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world, was related to the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, everybody's there for the feast. During which a huge candelabra was brought, was lit in the temple at night to remind the people of the pillar of fire that guided Israel in its wilderness journey. Uh, in fact, John has combined three wilderness images so far that we've, uh, we've looked at. The first, the manna in John 6, when God provided manna for the children of Israel to sustain them. Second, the water from the rock, which we learned about last week when Moses smote the rock to provide water for the children of Israel in the wilderness, and now the pillar of fire here in John 8, guiding the children of Israel in the wilderness. But notice also Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world. Light is characteristic of God. Every Jew knew this. Every Jew knew when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Every Jew knew that he was calling himself God. In John 1, Our first John one five, it says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This statement, Jesus is making again, claiming to be God. We're told in Psalms 84 verse 11, for the Lord is a son in Malachi four verse two. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, there is for our galaxy only one son and in the center and the source of light. So there is but one God who is the center and the source of life. In John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Spiritual light comes to those 
who willingly follow Jesus. The light of Jesus can change a person so that they never need to walk in darkness. Every one of us walked in darkness prior to coming to Jesus. We didn't realize it. We didn't realize that we were just groping in the darkness. But once we came to Jesus, the light was the light, the light shone and we understood. For the very first time, when we came to Jesus, we understood. The, the light had been cast, and we saw things for what they really were. Um, I went to a funeral a few weeks ago, and it was from a, a high school friend of mine. And I was amazed as I was listening to the different people that I had gone to high school with, and they were talking about how their generation was so much more innocent than this this generation today. And I'm listening to them, and I'm thinking, seriously? Are they serious? In my generation, I can remember a girl walking down the corridor at school, mescaline, acid, $2 a hit. I can remember the drugs. I can remember the drinking. I can remember all the stuff that took place. So we weren't really so innocent. But what we did do is open the door for the future generations to become more and more wild and crazy. So I just think, wow, do these people really see life for what it really is? Um, So if we judge our life by our standard, we're always going to look better. But the standard is Jesus Christ. We judge everything by the standard of Jesus. And then we really understand how dark we are. And Jesus came that we might walk uh, in the light. And, and he pulls every one of us out of the darkness. But not only do are we pulled out of the darkness, but we now have the light of Jesus living in us. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 8, it says, For you were once darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Philippians 2, verse 15, That ye may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in this world. Now look at verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees, and they rejected the truth. Jesus proclaimed that he was the light of the world, but the Pharisees could not see it. They couldn't see the light, but it was because they were blinded. The religious leaders made a deliberate choice. Uh, I thought about Pharaoh, who had the truth delivered to him. I mean, it was clear. It was concise. I mean, as they went through all those different things that they went through before the children of Israel left, Pharaoh knew God was real. And he made a deliberate choice to reject that truth. And it cost him his life as he was drowned in the Red Sea. I think about Hugh Hefner was raised in a minister's home and he rejected the truth, a deliberate choice. I think about Joseph Stalin, studied the priesthood, and he rejected the truth, a deliberate choice. Mao was raised by missionary teaching. He rejected the truth. It was a deliberate choice. You notice all four of these examples, their life went to such degree of darkness when they rejected the truth. And Pastor Chuck used to make this statement, and I loved it. He says, you reject the truth, and you'll believe any lie. Isn't it true? That's what we see today in our world. 
The Pharisees argued, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. The Pharisees argued uh, that his self-defense was not admissible evidence, but of course it was since he was the omniscient, impartial, and perfect son of God. In chapter 7, the issues of origin and destination prevailed. In chapter 5, the question of those whose authority to witness truth dominated the conversation. In verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. Jesus is contrasting himself with the Pharisees. He knows both his origin and destination, but they knew neither. They were not in a position to comment on his witness. They were totally unaware of the great heavenly facts. They weren't even aware of the Bible or the manuscripts that they held. But Jesus knew them. They didn't. Jesus continues to deal with who he is, and he declares his righteous judgments and can be seen as far back uh, as in chapter 5, and and it runs all the way to chapter 10. Jesus states in verse 15, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. I love that. Jesus judges righteously. They cannot judge because their judgment is carnal. It's fleshy. The religious leaders had established themselves over... um, and declared, they had established themselves to be judge over Jesus, and they declared that he was false, that he was wrong. It was against him, uh, because according to their fleshly wisdom, he was born in Galilee. Had they done their homework, they would have known that he came from Bethlehem, just as the scriptures had foretold. Verse 16 begins with, And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. He must give witness about himself. No one else is qualified to give witness about his nature or about his work. Who else could witness about Jesus? Jesus was the only one qualified to give that witness. Though the religious leaders protested, Jesus was absolutely assured and secure in his identity, uh, despite those who said otherwise. Jesus goes on in verses 17 and 18. It says, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two uh, men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. If the Jews demanded two witnesses, um, he had it. It was himself, and it was his Father. Previously, John gave witness uh, uh, of his Father in John chapter 5, verses 37 through 47 which revealed that the, G, that the Pharisees were ignorant of the Father's testimony of the Son by never hearing God's voice or knowing the word of God, which Gloria, uh, several weeks ago, gave a very thorough, extensive um, teaching regarding this matter. And if you didn't get to hear this, the study, I encourage you to get it. She did a phenomenal job on the witness of the Father and of the Son. Uh, Jesus is talking to the so-called experts of the law. They claim to know the law of God, but they did not know the God of the law. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not shirk 
evade, or shun from continually ministering and seeking to educate these religious leaders despite their hostility towards them. That's why I was so amazed as I studied this. You don't see any hostility here. In these verses, you don't see the the hostility. Uh, They did not even um, have the word abiding in their hearts. But because of their pride, they could not see. Because that pride. And once pride gets a hold of us, it, it will destroy us. It will destroy us. We're told in Obadiah chapter 1, verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. This is what's happened to the religious leaders. The pride of their heart has deceived them. It was impossible for them to form any valid um, opinion about Jesus because of their carnality. Jesus contrasts his spirit with theirs. They were ignorant of the facts, yet they were sitting in judgment upon him. Jesus was not judgmental on them, even though he had all the facts. He withheld judgment because he was here to save and not to condemn. Look at verse 19. Then they said to him, where is your father? And this possibly was a cutting remark. This refers to the controversy uh, regarding his virgin birth and to the rumors uh, that it was not a miraculous conception, but an impure one. In referring to Jesus' parents, the Pharisees thought they had some shameful information on him. And again, they're ignorant. The latter part of 19 says, Jesus answered, you know, neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you had have known my father also. In response, Jesus makes it clear that they did not know anything about him or his father. They prided themselves on knowledge of God. Jesus tells them they have no knowledge of him at all. They were completely ignorant. Uh, They did not know the father, and therefore they did not know the son. They were only religious, and religion doesn't help anybody. Look at verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury, and he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Despite Jesus educating them, their blindness and their hatred continued to hinder them from God's truth. They believed they held the knowledge and the understanding. They could make their plans uh, for his death. They could gnash their teeth with rage and and send their militia to arrest him. All their efforts would be useless and ineffective. Do you remember in chapter 7 where the religious leaders sent the, sent the uh, captains to go get him? And what had happened? Those men came back and they said, no man has ever spoke like this. Why? Because his hour had not come. There's no power on earth or in hell that could t- touch him. Look at verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus is saying, you have been following me all around Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, taking every issue with everything I say. They continue to reject him. They were, uh, there will come a time where you will seek me, and you will not find me, because it will be too late. You shall die in your sins, Jesus said. The Messiah that you expect to come will not come. The Messiah that you are looking for will never come, he's telling them, basically. And because you reject me, there is no other Savior. 
He says, you will die in your sins. If we follow Jesus on earth, we will follow him in heaven. If we express no desire to follow him on earth, what makes us think we can follow him to heaven? These Pharisees, if they continue, there's no way they will ever go to heaven. Look at verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because, says, because he says, where I go, you cannot come. This is another insult. To, uh, according to Josephus, the historian, suicide caused a person to occupy the worst place in hell, according to Josephus. And they would not follow him there. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Because they are from beneath, you are governed by the corrupt and reprobate views of this world's standard. Jesus says, I am from above, from heaven. He says, not of this world. His views were heavenly. His views were godly. At Jesus' baptism, God said in Matthew 3, verse 17, Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. pleased." On the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father said it again. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We, through the power of God, are not dominated by the world or its standard. Because you and I are born again, we're not dominated by the world's view, this world standard we have a higher standard we have a higher calling um we understand that that through the spirit uh we don't have to be held captive by our flesh but god's holy spirit dwells with every one of us and second peter 1 verse 3 tells us i have given you all things that pertain to life and godliness we're not like the pharisees because we have god's spirit dwelling in us Look at verse 24. Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Repeating what he said in verse 21. You will die in your sins. To use, uh, to refuse to believe who Jesus is meant spiritual death. It was obvious. If they refused, they would die in their sins. John 3 verse 19 tells us, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. And because their deeds were evil, they refused. This is the Pharisees. They refused the light. And you know, every one of us prior to being born again, were comfortable living in the darkness. We, we were fine. Didn't even phase us. But once Jesus revealed that light, the light of him, we were not comfortable anymore. And I'm so grateful. But we understand that men love darkness rather than light. In verses 25, it says, then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. He replied, I am just what I have been saying. But they rejected the evidence. Some asked questions for no other reason than to resist the truth and justify and refuse to believe. That's all they, that's the only reason they were asking. We all know that some ask questions just for the sake of argument. This is them. They are asking questions just for the sake of argument. They will continue to ask until they get the answer that they can use to condemn him. 
Now look at verse 26. I have many things to say to you and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Now remember, Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. He could have exposed their evil hearts. He could have, right then and there, could have exposed them. But he said, not right now, not now. Then Jesus maintained that he was sent by God. He maintained to have heard from God the things that he had taught. Their response in verse 27, they did not understand that he spoke of the Father. The plainest things are not understandable as they held on to their prejudice and their prejudgments, which blinded them, and there was a willful confusion and contempt. We all know people that we have shared with, and they are so stubborn. They are so set in their ways that they refuse to believe the truth. They refuse it. Though God's not willing that any should perish, they refuse to accept that truth. We all know people like that. We all know people that have come to the truth and then have walked away. Matter of fact, I'm going to be with some people like that in a few days. And I'm just praying, Lord, please let me be a witness. They knew what it was to walk with God. And they've walked away. They're living in darkness. They're groping in the darkness. They refuse the truth. Um, Their response in verse 27, they did not understand that he spoke of the Father. They could not understand. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as the Father taught me, I speak these things. Jesus is referring to his death, his burial, his his, um, resurrection, and his ascension. At this, Jesus would be revealed to the Jewish nation. It states in John 3, verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus said in John 12, uh, 32, And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. Jesus understood why he came. Jesus understood that he was coming to die on the cross. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God who died on the cross and was raised in victory. These religious leaders had no idea the cross would be the heart of the gospel, providing salvation. Jesus specifies the cross and that the world would know him only after the sacrificial death. Even a Roman soldier uh, beholding the event of Golgotha would confess, truly, this is the Son of God, in Mark fifteen thirty nine, The two men on the road to Emmaus who had watched their Lord, their beloved Lord, hang and die on the cross, left after the crucifixion, walking home. They're on the road to Emmaus. Jesus was resurrected and appeared to them in Luke 24, verses 25 and 27. And listen to his words. O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
Ought not the Christ to have suffered those things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Those two men got the most incredible Bible study as Jesus expounded from the Old Testament to the New Testament, describing that he needed to go through this process in order to save man. Amazing. I wish I was one of those two men on the road. Um, This was the message Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts uh, chapter 2. Not only the death of Jesus, but also his resurrection and uh, his uh, exaltation and glory. Look at verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Not only was he sent by the Father, but the Father was with him. Despite the accusation of the Pharisees, despite the fact that his disciples would forsake him, the Father was with him. Jesus knew that the Father was with him. There's only one point when the Father was not with Jesus. And that was when Jesus took upon all the sins of the world. And God could not look at those sins. What an amazing Lord we have. What he did for us. This is the Son of God who was always with the Father. The fellowship, the friendship was incredible, like nothing we could ever know. I know what it is to have an awesome relationship with my children. I have an awesome relationship with my daughter. But Jesus had the most incredible relationship with the Father. And God was with him. God was walking with him through this whole situation. Jesus said, the father has not left me alone. The unity between the father and the son continues and will continue. Jesus then stated, for I always do those things that please him. He always did what pleased the father. Wouldn't you love to be able to make that statement? I sure wish I could make that statement. But he could and he did. After all is said and done between the religious leaders and Jesus and their attempts to discredit Jesus, look at the closing verse of our study. Verse 30, it says, And he spoke these words, and many believed in him. He is great enough to be the light of the world, yet his rays are subtle enough to enter every human heart and conscience. In the face of the religious leaders' lack of understanding, There were those who believed. And this will always take place until Jesus comes back and takes us home. There will always be controversy. There will always be two sides. You are either for him or you're against him. There's no such thing as neutral ground. You are either for him. If you're neutral, you're against him. To believe in him is just the beginning. And in the 45 years that I have walked with him, there is so much that he wants to teach me. It is lifetime of growing and learning of him. God is awesome. God wants us to grow in wisdom and knowledge and stature and favor before him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your patience as we watch you minister to these people 
that absolutely hate you. They despise you. And yet you are so incredibly patient. You are so incredibly patient today to those who absolutely hate you, to those who absolutely despise you. Your patience is there, your mercy, your kindness. God, your word says that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. God, help us to learn. Help us not to get so angry, but help us to be patient as we deal with those in this world that would come against us, that would come against what we believe, that would come against you. Father, I just thank you for your teaching, for the power of your word, for the holiness of who you are. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.